Well, it's good to be with you tonight. Glad you're here. If you haven't already, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up again to the New Testament book of Philemon. That's where you were this past week, just reading through. You jump from the book of Colossians over to Philemon. It's kind of an extension, if you will, of that book. We're going to walk through. It's a short book, really one chapter. I think we can cover that whole book tonight, believe it or not. Uh, and we're going to get there in just a minute. But let me kind of set up where we're going tonight. I think it's going to be really challenging for us uh, as the people of God. Uh, I want to begin with something that happened uh, really about 50 years ago. But the world was shocked uh, when news came out of Ecuador that five American missionaries had been brutally murdered there by the Alca Indians. You've probably heard of this story. It's pretty well known. Five missionaries, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, and Roger Yadarin were missionaries there to Ecuador, reaching a, really an unreached people group called the Alca Indians. And they'd gone there to make Jesus known. They'd laid down their life and all the risk that was involved to make Jesus known to this people group. And uh, thinking that they had gained their trust, the missionaries made several face-to-face encounters with the Alka Indians. As the story goes, they had even given one of the tribal leaders a ride in their airplane, and they thought they had really advanced in the relationship. But on January 8th, 1956, all five missionaries were attacked and brutally speared to death by the Alka Indians, whom they had gone to serve and make Jesus known. Two years later, what happened was really just one of my favorite pictures anywhere of grace and forgiveness. Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife, one of the men that had been murdered, along with Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, went to live with the tribe, the Alcas. They went and planted their lives amidst these people that had brutally killed their loved ones. The women studied the tribe's language. They learned their culture. They invested and planted their lives there. And their demonstration of forgiveness and grace to the men who had murdered their loved ones was used by God to give them the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, really leading to what was almost a revival among the Alka Indians. Many members of the tribe became followers of Christ. Years later, Nate Saint's son, Steve, who's actually been at our church, we've heard his story, moved his family from Florida to live among the Alka Indians. Now today, the grandchildren of Nate Saint, the one who, were mur- who was murdered, have a relationship with a man called Menke, who was actually the one that had killed their grandfather. And their relationship now is so close in Christ, they refer to him as grandfather. Now, this story is a vivid reminder to us tonight of a couple realities. And here's why I tell the story. One is this, fallen human beings have an immense capacity to hurt one another. And all God's people said, amen. We all are perpetrators of it. We are all recipients of it. We as fallen humans have an immense capacity to hurt one another. At the same time, Gospel-transformed, forgiven Jesus followers have an immense capacity to forgive. Amen? I know that to be true on the pages of Scripture and in the lives of many of you. 
What we're going to look at tonight is the reality that the gospel, the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we've, we've been looking at this reality over the last few weeks of how the gospel, Christ, buried, dead, crucified, buried, resurrected from the dead. The transforming power of the gospel to those who believe is transformational in every area of our life. We saw from Acts that it transformed the very purpose of the apostles' lives as they boldly went out and made Jesus known. We saw a few weeks ago that the gospel transforms our relationship to sin. We're now dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We saw last week that the gospel transforms our relationship to money and possessions and stuff. This week, we're going to see that the gospel transforms human relationships, especially among believers. And what that looks like, we have a little letter in the Bible called the book or the letter of Philemon. Now, we see this throughout the New Testament, throughout the pages of Scripture, that the gospel transforms the quality of our human relationships. Let me just cut to the chase. If your human relationships are not categorically and qualitatively different than they were before you came to know Christ, you have to at least ask the question, have I ever genuinely experienced transformation? Christ in us, through the gospel, transforms the way we relate to human beings. Give me some examples. 1 Peter 1.22, the Bible says, and you don't have to look these up, I'll just read these to you. Since you, believers, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. That ought to characterize our human relationships, especially among believers. Romans 12 says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Bless those who persecute you. Wow, that's transformational. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another. Colossians chapter 3 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. Do you know why the Bible says we have to bear with one another? Because we hurt one another. We offend one another. We disappoint one another. We let one another down. We're fallen human beings. But in the power of the resurrected Christ, Paul says here, bear with one another. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you so also should you. Paul read this verse earlier, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and we're going to draw our big truth tonight out of this verse, and then it's going to guide us through Philemon. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? What is the model of forgiveness? What is the standard of forgiveness? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Wow. So the idea that forgiveness is an impossible reality in human relationships among believers is completely contrary to the teaching of the New Testament. 
The idea that my hurt is so deep or that the offense brought upon me is so hurtful that I cannot forgive completely that person is in direct contradiction to the teaching of the New Testament and the power of the gospel that transforms our lives. So here's your big truth. We're going to kind of operate around this tonight. It's this. We forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Straight out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. We forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Fallen human beings have an immense capacity to hurt one another. You experienced it this week. You experienced it maybe today. And at the same time, gospel-transformed, forgiven followers of Jesus have the immense capacity to forgive others. Now, book of Philemon. Book of Philemon, you could say, is a letter about forgiveness and reconciliation. I'll go ahead and jump in and begin to read. I want to try to read through this whole book and just make some points as we go along. But follow along with me. Philemon chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. Paul. Paul recognizes or characterizes himself here. He says he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Our beloved and fellow co-worker and Athia and our sister Archippus and our fellow soldier and the church that is in your house, speaking to Philemon, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the introduction to the letter of Philemon. What did we learn? Well, Paul is the writer of this letter. Paul is in house arrest or prison in Rome. This is one of those prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon are known as these prison epistles written by Paul under house arrest in Rome. He's writing to a man named Philemon. Now here's what we know about Philemon from this letter. He was a significantly wealthy man of renowned believer who lived in the city of Colossae. Evidently, a church had started there. We know that because of the letter of Colossians out of the church at Ephesians. Somehow, Paul had had great influence there. Many had come to Christ through the teaching and the preaching of Paul. Evidently, Philemon is one of those men that had come to Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's a leader in the church there in Colossae. Evidently, the church, in fact, meets in his house, Paul says here in the first few verses. Now, it's likely that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians at about the same time he writes the letter to Philemon. Evidently, two men carry these three letters to the churches and then to Philemon himself. Those two men are recognized back in Colossians chapter 4 as Tychicus and a man named Onesimus. Keep that name in mind. So Paul writes this letter from from jail in Rome. He writes it to the churches in Colossae and uh, Ephesians. And then he writes this other personal letter to this fellow Philemon. And he puts it in the hands of two men, Tychicus and Onesimus. And they're the ones that carry the letter personally to the churches and then to Philemon himself. Verse 4. 
Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul has great love for this man, Philemon. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. He's praying for Philemon's growth and his influence and his impact. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. It's a very personal letter. He says, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Evidently, Philemon is a sincere, devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to verse 8, Paul is going to make a request of Philemon. From his prison or his house arrest there in Rome. Some things have transpired over the last few years. And we're going to try to figure out what those are from the letter of Philemon. And he's going to ask something of Philemon. Verse 8. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. I could (laughs) use my apostolic authority and drop the hammer on you, Philemon. But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to make a request. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. It's interesting. Paul never refers to himself as a prisoner of Rome. He's in Roman chains, but he knows he's he's there by the will of God and for the purpose of the propagation of the gospel and to make Jesus known. So he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, Philemon. Here's my appeal. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Remember that name? So Onesimus is this fellow that's carrying the letter. He delivers it to Philemon. Let's just use our imagination. Philemon opens the scroll, reads the letter, and Paul says, I'm making an appeal to you, Philemon, for Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment, spiritually speaking. Paul became the spiritual father of Onesimus. We'll tell you about that in just a second. He says, formerly Philemon, he, Onesimus, was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Paul's making a play on words there. The name Onesimus literally means useful. Paul is saying, Philemon, something's happened in the life of Onesimus that his name now comes to represent who he really is. He's of great use. What happened and who is this guy, Onesimus? Well, here's what we know from the rest of the letter. Onesimus was a former bondservant or slave of Philemon. At some point in the past, Onesimus had fled as a fugitive from Philemon Evidently, we read at the end of the letter, at loss, at great loss to Philemon, it seems to indicate that he evidently had even stolen some things possibly from Philemon. He fled from Philemon, and here's the irony of it. He ran from Colossae throughout the Roman world, finds himself in the city of Rome, and lo and behold, guess who Onesimus bumps into? Paul. (laughs) Just happened to bump in to the apostle Paul Evidently in the city of Rome. And while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, actively sharing Jesus, his path crossed with Onesimus. He shared the gospel and Onesimus was born again. 
This fugitive runaway slave was transformed by the message of the gospel. Now, I want to stop right here and I want to take a little pause because it's impossible to read the book of Philemon and not scratch your head and ask some questions. Here's the question I want to try to answer quickly, and it's this. Okay, Pastor Mike, well, what about slavery in the Roman Empire? That's not the point of this letter, and I don't want that to distract us from the main point of the letter, but it's really hard to read through when you come across the reality. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. So what do we know about slavery in the Roman Empire? Stay with me for a second. I've done some study the last few weeks. We know, according to history, that one-third of the population of Rome were slaves. It's common practice. In Paul's day, evidently, there were more slaves or bond servants, as the ESV translates it. Same Greek word, doulos. There were more doulos bond servants in Rome than free labor employees. It was the economic engine of Rome, if you will. Bond servants or slaves were considered property of their master. Some became slaves through military conquest of Rome. Rome would go into a land, take out uh, the, the they would over victory over that area. They would bring out slaves. They would become slaves of Roman citizens. Some entered slavery to repay a debt. Some willingly chose to serve under the provision and protection of their masters. Now again, I'm just going to make a quick point because I think this is important in our cultural climate of today. Unlike the institution of slavery in colonial America... This slavery in Rome was not based on the hideous notion of racial superiority. It was not race-based. It was a gross distortion of Scripture, therefore, and if you read back in history, when some in the past tried to support colonial slavery in America with biblical texts, it is a gross distortion of the Scriptures. It's important also for us to see here in this letter as you read it, that Paul and the other apostles do not primarily endeavor to destroy the institution of slavery in the Roman world. That's not their primary aim. Instead, the priority is gospel proclamation resulting in the transformation of masters and slaves alike. These transformed relationships with Christ and one another lay the foundation for the eventual abolition of the unjust institution of slavery altogether. That's huge for us to recognize. Paul's social activism, first and foremost, was, was proclamation of the message of the gospel. And then those who had been transformed by the gospel would lead to the needed social change and the eventual abolition of slavery in Rome. And that's exactly what happened. Christianity alone transformed the institution of slavery. For example, Colossians chapter 3 verse 22, Paul speaks to bondservants and says, Bondservants, obey in everything. Those are who your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as unto the Lord. If you're a Christian bondservant, you be a bondservant as unto the Lord first and honor your human master. To masters in Colossians 4.1, he said, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Know that you have also a master in heaven. 
And in something, you got to understand, that was completely countercultural in that day. In the Bible and the Bible alone, statements like this would be made. Colossians 3.11. Here, in the body of Christ, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That was radical gospel transformation. To say to a master and their bondservants, you will be treated with equal value and dignity. You are now on an equal plane. You are brothers in the Lord. Was radical transformation. Listen, that only the gospel of Jesus Christ could bring about. So in this letter, you see that played out. You have Onesimus now who fled as an unbelieving slave, if you will. He comes to Rome. He's transformed by the gospel. Paul then sends him back to Philemon and calls on there to be a new type and quality of relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Let's keep reading, all right? Verse 12. Paul says, I'm, I'm sending him back to you. <laughs> and I'm sending my very heart. Paul had evidently Build an incredible relationship with Onesimus. He said, I would have been glad to have kept him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness, Philemon, might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Philemon, I'm sending back to you so you can make things right. So that you guys can demonstrate to the entire church at Colossae the nature of how the gospel transforms relationship. 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. That's a great statement of God's sovereignty. Paul says, maybe this is why I was parted from you to begin with. So that he would come and hear the gospel and be transformed. And now be your brother forever in Christ. Incredible statement, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more, more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now listen, brothers and sisters, I want you to see this, that in that culture, again, I said it earlier, and I can't underemphasize this, or I can't state this too strongly, the New Testament pictures a depth and diversity of human relationships that existed in the church that it existed nowhere else in Roman culture. That a master and a slave could stand alongside one another as brothers in the Lord on equal plane existed nowhere else in Roman society. It was the transforming power of the gospel which eventually led to the abolishment of the institution of slavery altogether in the Roman Empire. Wrap up, verse 17. So Paul says, if you consider me your partner. And the word partner is that word of partner in ministry, koinonia, that word fellowship. If you have this type of relationship with me, which we do, receive him, Onesimus, as you receive me. Wow. By the way, Paul sticks his neck out for Onesimus. In the same way Barnabas had stuck his neck out for Paul so many years before. He says, I can vouch for this man. He is a transformed man. In fact, I'll vouch for it to this point. 
Philemon, you receive Onesimus as if he were me. Incredible. If he's wronged you at all, verse 18, or if he owes you anything, Paul says, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Referring back to the ministry of Paul and Philemon's life. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Verse 21, he wraps up. He says, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare, prepare a guest room for me. Paul hopes to make his way there to Colossae at some point in the future. Now. See if we can make a few applications in our life from the letter Paul to Philemon tonight. Big truth again is this. We forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm just going to ask a few questions about this thing called forgiveness. Give a couple application points and then challenge us to respond to what God is speaking to us through his word tonight. Ask the question this way. What is true forgiveness? If you had to give a definition to forgiveness and how we live that out in our human relationships, how would you define forgiveness? I'm going to put a definition on the screen, and I, I have to say I borrowed this definition of one of the great pastors of our day. That's Pastor Paul Mermilia. This is his definition, so I'll give him credit for it. It goes like this. Forgiveness is the recognition and release of the debt that is owed us along with reconciliation and restoration of the relationship with the person who has wronged us. I want you to notice a few words in this definition quickly, and we see this lived out in the life of Philemon and Onesimus. Number one is recognition of the wrong that was committed. Forgiveness involves a clear recognition that a wrong has been committed. Forgiveness is not ignoring the fact that a wrong has been committed. In fact, in order for forgiveness to take place, we must deal with it, address it, communicate about it. And sometimes that is so hard for us to do. And sometimes we rob ourselves and we rob others of the experience of true forgiveness because we refuse to talk about offenses that come our way. We refuse to have the hard conversations even with those that have offended us. We refuse to have the gospel-saturated, difficult face-to-face -face dialogue out of which can come forgiveness. And we do that in the South, and somehow we call it Southern hospitality. The Bible calls it wrong. Forgiveness recognizes that a wrong has been committed. Paul says, look, I'm sending him back to you. Meaning, there's going to have to be a conversation between you, Philemon, and Onesimus. I'm sending him back to you. Can't avoid it. Release. Forgiveness involves release of the person who committed the wrong of the debt that they owe. It's not ignoring that there's a debt, but it's a willful choosing to release that person from the debt they owe to you in their offense. It's an act of grace. It's not natural. It's countercultural because we love holding on to offenses. But forgiveness is the recognition of the wrong and a release of that debt that has been committed 
against us. Forgiveness involves reconciliation. That's the reconciliation of the relationship with the person who has wronged us. It's more than, I meant, we're good, don't worry about it. No, it is a pursuit of that person to restore fully the relationship. It is a reconciliation that takes place when it's gospel transformed forgiveness. And there is restoration of that person's position in the family and even the larger community. Their status is replaced as it was before the offense occurred. It's huge. You can say forgiveness as you saw it here. This is what Paul is calling Philemon to do. Philemon, we're, we're acknowledging there was an offense. Onesimus sinned against you. There was a debt that he now owes to you. But I'm telling you, he is now a bond, he is more than a bondservant. Welcome him back. Reconcile with him. And even recognize that within the larger community there of Colossae. Because everybody knew what Onesimus had done. There was a restoration that took place, and that's what Paul is calling Onis or Philemon to do. Verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive. Second question quickly. Not only how do we define forgiveness. <laughs> Why is forgiveness so doggone hard for us sometimes? Right? Now, don't look at me so spiritual or like, yeah, I always quickly forgive those who have wronged me and offended me. No, you don't. I don't either. I play with it. I, I, I run it over in my head. I, I kind of like the sense of holding on to an offense. It gives me this sense of power over that person, right? We play that game. Why is it so hard for us? Let me give you a, quick, a few quick reasons quickly. Number one is because pain inflicted by others is a real thing. I mean, listen, the Bible in no way is saying what Onesimus did to Paul is a minor issue. It recognizes it as a real thing. Sometimes the pain inflicted by others is very difficult to release and forgive. It's not natural. Supernatural by the power of the gospel and the power of Christ. Secondly, we forget the sovereignty of God. Paul says it here. He says, for this perhaps, what happened to Onesimus, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. In other words, Philemon, has it ever occurred to you that God was sovereign over this offense? That this hurt that came into your life, Philemon, was actually orchestrated by God himself for your good and salvation even for Onesimus. That God is at work way beyond your personal hurt and offense. Which is always true, by the way. It's hard to see past the hurt and the offense to the greater picture of what God is doing. Thirdly, it's because internally we do long for justice. Somebody does us wrong, somebody cheats us, somebody cuts us off, whatever it may be. We, you got to make it right. There is an internal longing for justice in us, but here's the reality of the gospel. For those of us who in Christ, you have to understand justice has already been paid. The justice that you long for to make right the offenses that are inflicted upon you, the justice has already been paid in Christ Jesus. Right? That's the power of the gospel. And the lives of those transformed. Fourthly, quickly, 
Forgiveness is often perceived as weakness. It's a weak thing to forgive, which is absolutely an erroneous view. Fifthly, we have an inward battle against an enemy called pride. Our pride masquerades and we often enjoy and like being the victim. Sometimes we just like being the victim because sometimes we believe that gives us a sense of power and that's nothing more than an expression of pride. And what scripture calls us to as those who have been transformed is we are to forgive the offenses of others as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Now, I'm going to ask one final question. I'm going to ask Lainey just to come up and begin to play. And we're going to move into a very brief time of response and then move into a time. Of, we're going to have an elder conversation with you tonight. Some things we want to share with you. as church family challenge you with. And I want to ask a couple more questions. And this is really going to guide us into a time of response. And it's this. Why should we forgive? Why should we forgive? And again, some of you are recounting hurts and offenses and maybe some offenses you're holding on to right now and how you've been slighted and just fill in the blank. Number one, we forgive because our Heavenly Father commands us to forgive in Christ. Throughout the New Testament, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as... God in Christ has forgiven you. We're commanded to forgive. But secondly, we forgive others because we have been forgiven far more. I tell you, it's hard to hold on to a spirit of unforgiveness when I am reminded personally of the immense rebellion and offenses against God that I have been forgiven of. How in the world could I ever choose to not forgive? You see, in the cross, in the cross is a full recognition of our wrongs. The Bible never covers up our offenses. In fact, Jesus bore our offenses in the cross. In the cross is a full release of our debt. Debt is canceled. In the cross and resurrection is a full pursuit of reconciliation between God and us. And in the cross is a full restoration of our standing as sons and daughters with an inheritance and a future. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What an immense picture of forgiveness. So I just want to ask you to bow your heads there for just a moment. And I, I really want you to respond to the message of God's word tonight. Maybe again, you're recounting an offense or someone who's offended you, hurt you deeply, whatever the case is. The questions for you tonight are simply this. Number one, have you personally experienced the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus? Have you by faith and repentance received the gift of forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus? And secondly, are you demonstrating that type of forgiveness in your life toward others? Let's cut to the chase right now. Are there some in your life right now that you're harboring and holding, holding bitterness toward? 
Are there some that you believe it gives you a sense of power over them and you want to hold on and play with that hurt and dangle with it instead of letting it go and releasing it in Christ? Are you harboring hurt and bitterness from years ago in your past that are a stumbling block to your relationship with Christ? message of scripture and the message of of the cross and of the Lord Jesus is we as followers of Christ forgive as God in Christ has forgiven so I'm going to pray for you give you just a second there in your seat we're going to move into a time of having an elder conversation I'm going to ask the guys to come on and join me on stage but you just in a moment of worship there and a moment of response to the truth and responding to what God may be doing in your heart right now. And I'm going to pray for you. Father, I thank you for tonight. And I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for how it cuts to where we're living, Lord. Pray that we would remember in our hearts, Lord, that though our sins were like scarlet, though our sins were like crimson, Lord, deep, that you have made us white as snow, and you have reconciled us to yourself in Christ Jesus, and you have forgiven our trespasses and our sins, and you have cast them into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west so far you have removed our transgressions from us and we praise you now in the power of the spirit Lord send us out as messengers and ministers of reconciliation forgiving others as you have forgiven us in Christ we love you we praise you it's in the great name of Jesus Christ we pray